Now we will come to the time in our service where we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, talk about what it means, why it matters. We are concluding our series through our purpose statement, purpose, why are we here? Uh, I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you to turn to John chapter 9. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 758. And if English is not your first language, I want you to know we do have sermon manuscript available at the back if you want to follow along with that. Uh, I, I, I talk fast, I do. So uh, if that's going to help you to follow along, we've made that available for you as well. I'm not going to read our passage this morning. It is the entire chapter. I got eyebrows raised from everyone who saw this, whether they were making the bulletin or whatever this week. They were like, oh, read the whole chapter, really? Yeah, it's the whole chapter. It's uh, really one story encapsulated in that chapter. We're going to read through it as we talk this morning. So keep your finger there. Keep the page open to John chapter 9. I'm going to pray for us once more to ask God to bless this particular time, and then we'll just dig in. Father, as we come now to your word, we just ask that you would speak to us powerfully through it. Your Holy Spirit, we believe, inspired men to write these words thousands of years ago, and yet, because that same Spirit is alive today, although the men are not, the words that you inspired them to write are here with us, and you want to speak through them now, today, to us. You've said when you send out your word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. It does not return void to you. So I ask that as we dig into this passage today, as we come to your word now, that you would accomplish the purpose that you want to accomplish in us today, whatever that is. As I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, here we go. Today we are completing this series entitled Purpose. Why are we here? Where we've been uh, going through our purpose statement, our, our why as a church, really to just help reset us and begin, as we begin this new season of life as a church, just to understand really why it is that we exist at all as a church. And if this is your first Sunday with us or you haven't been with us uh, recently, just to recap, that purpose is we exist to renew our city and our world by demonstrating and declaring transforming power of the gospel. I hope you're not sick of hearing that. That is the reason we've said we're here, and, and although we, the series ends today, we're going to continue to talk about that and come back to that, because that is the whole reason why we're here. Just to quickly review, if you haven't been with us, so we can see where we are and where we're going to end up today, we said, first of all, that knowing and staying focused on our purpose is so essential because it helps us to know why we exist, but it also directs us to know where it is that we should be going, what, what activities we should be doing once we know what that purpose is. We talked about gospel transformation, how the gospel has the power to transform lives, transform people, transform cities, and we talked about how sometimes we can get in the way of that as God's people. When uh, uh, we, we talked about renewal, we talked about the way that our purpose statement presupposes from its beginning that our city and world are broken, that they're in need of renewal, and that when we see those places of brokenness, we are now called as transformed people to be agents of renewal in those places where we see brokenness. And then last Sunday, we looked at how demonstrating the gospel, demonstrating gospel transformation every day, not just here, in front of people, it helps to prepare the soil of their hearts to be more receptive to the declared message. So, today, I hope you weren't dreading this, today we can conclude our series by looking at declaring the gospel. 
declaring the gospel, speaking it, telling the message. And if you're anything like me, even just hearing those words, your blood pressure just went up a few notches as though I had said words like tax audit or, or, or root canal, whatever it is. Uh, sometimes, somehow just hearing that, for the life of me, I can't think what it is, what it is about telling people that life-changing message of the gospel, that God in his love sent Jesus to save me, to, to restore my spiritual sight, to, to really to give me spiritual life where I was spiritually dead. I can't understand for the life of me why we would equate something like that, telling people that, with sitting for two and a half hours of drilling in a dentist's chair. I don't, I don't know why those two things seem to equate for us. And yet... Even if we acknowledge they're different, okay, yeah, they're not the same thing. Somehow that same tightness, that same fear, that same whatever it is, comes whenever we think about telling people, speaking the message, declaring the message to those who still need to be transformed by it. And we talked a few weeks ago about the way how sometimes we can get in the way of that gospel transformation, get in the way of it when we start believing as God's children, we're supposed to be his image consultants instead of his uh, agents of transformation, his ambassadors. But for a lot of us, I don't think we withhold the message because we don't think God should save people. We withhold it because we're terrified to speak it. We're just terrified to speak it. And over and over again, when I ask people, okay, well, what, what's What's stopping you? What's, what's hindering you? What makes it so intimidating to speak that message, to declare it? The, the consistent reason that people give, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I don't, I don't know enough uh, theology or the Bible. I, I don't know apologetics or defenses for the Christian faith. And so the result of that overwhelming fear is we think, if I try to tell the gospel, I'm going to be asked a question. And we don't know what that question is, but it's a question Somebody's going to ask me, and I'm not going to be able to answer it, and then, well, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, but there's going to be a question, and we won't be able to answer it, and, and some, some version of that person's going to reject Christ and spend an eternity in hell, it's going to be my fault, because I couldn't answer the question. It sounds irrational when you say it out loud, but we all feel that inside us, and that's one of the things that keeps us from wanting to speak it consistent result of that fear is that we end up not declaring the message. Just, we, just, we just don't say it, and we just hope that man, maybe if I just live my life well enough, if I demonstrate the gospel well enough, then they'll want to ask somebody else about it. You know, one of the professionals, a pastor or someone, they'll go to them and ask them. Or we just want to push in all our chips on the hope that that quote from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. We want to push in all our chips that that's right, and if I just demonstrate the gospel well enough that I won't, using words, I won't have to actually say anything to people. Two problems with that is that, first of all, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. That's actually a misquote of St. Francis, and he actually didn't even say that. Secondly, if you're going to declare the message of the gospel, if you're going to speak it, w- words are necessary. They, they are necessary. You're going to have to say something eventually. So we talked uh, last week about the way, uh, if you are declaring them the gospel, but you're not demonstrating it, it's a little bit like going to a home and garden show where there's no demonstration booths, and everyone's just standing around talking. It would just be like a terrible home and garden show. So that's what it means to declare the message, but not demonstrate it. On the other side, if you demonstrate the gospel well, but you don't declare it, what, you, what you've become is basically one of those Disney characters at Disneyland. You become Pluto or Mickey where you can, 
You, you know what? Those guys demonstrate the message of Disneyland so well. You know, the fun, the imagination of Disneyland. Oh, man, it's so great. And yet, they're terrible conversationalists. If you've ever been to Disneyland or p e whatever, you try to talk to these guys, ask them, hey, hey well, tell me about what was Disney's vision for creating this place and all these fun characters. You're going to get... <laughs> That's all you're going to get. Okay, so great demonstrators, terrible declarers. So if the purpose for which God made us is to both know Him and to make Him known, devoting ourselves to God and His Word, even seeking to live our lives daily obediently, devoting ourselves in a response to the gospel, it's still not going to be sufficient to live out that purpose if we're not also declaring the message of the one who saved us, the one who transformed us. Faith comes by hearing. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, as we look through this story today in John chapter 9 about a man who was born blind from birth, Jesus heals, I think we're going to see the perfect mix of both demonstration and declaration of the transforming power of the gospel and how we need both in order to see renewal take place. My prayer is that as we go through this, it's just going to help all of us grow in our freedom as well as our our confidence in declaring that message of, of the gospel to people who so desperately need to hear it. So as we look through this story, I want to just show you two things this morning. I want you to see how transformation leads to declaration, and then we're going to talk about how declaration leads to greater revelation. Transformation to declaration, declaration to greater revelation. So open up your Bibles again if you've closed it. John chapter 9, we'll dig into this together in this last message in our series on our purpose statement. So let's look first of all at transformation to declaration. Transformation to declaration. Now if you look in chapter 9 here, verses 1 through 7, this is where the transformation of this guy takes place. Look with me there. We read this. As he, this is Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it in the man's eyes. Okay, that's gross. Let's just say that. I know it's Jesus, but that's still gross. Verse 7, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went, washed, and he came home seeing. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend specifically on this one aspect of it, but think about it. I think it's worth mentioning. Even in these little short seven verses, we see the beginnings of a theology of the sovereignty of God in suffering. We see a little bit of a window now into what God's doing in and through suffering. It was the prevailing view in Jesus' day, and actually it's very much common in our day and age as well today, to look and see suffering, uh, misfortune, tragedy, and assume there's some sort of a, a cause and effect thing going on. They must have sinned somehow. They must have made poor choices, poor moral failure of some kind. That's, that's the reason they're suffering. You know what? If you hear about somebody walking down the road, they get struck by lightning. Well, everyone just immediately thinks, oh, Clearly, that guy must have done something wrong. God is just blowing up his life now because 
He did something. And, and if we're honest, we think those same things when we look at uh, homeless people, drug addicted people, divorced people, people with special needs kids. Something in our minds says so they must have done something. I don't know what. Maybe, maybe we'd never even say it out loud, but something happened. And they made poor choices in their past, whatever it is. And that's the result. That's why this is happening. Totally unfair, but that's, that's what we think. That's exactly what's happening here in our passage. The disciples, they walk by, they see this blind man beside the road, and they see him that somehow they know he's blind from birth. We're not told that. But the very first question is, oh, Jesus, who sinned? What's the cause of this bad thing? Was it this man who sinned or his parents that he was born blind from birth? And yes, there was a teaching in this day by certain rabbis that you could actually sin in the womb. Uh, I don't know how that worked, but apparently that's what they thought. So who sinned? What's the cause of this? Which one of these people sinned that he was born blind? And if you look at verse 3, Jesus says what? Neither. Neither this man nor his parents. Nobody sinned to cause this to happen. And then look, he goes on to say, actually, there's a plan being worked out. There's actually a God-ordained plan happening that's going to be played out in this man's blindness, in his disability, where the whole point has been leading up to this one encounter now, with Jesus, where Jesus is going to heal him and transform him. Maybe you say that's not fair. This guy's got to go through at least 13 years. Think of that. Blind for at least 13 years of his life with no idea why. Wondering, man, did I sin in the womb? Did my parents do something that this is the reason I'm suffering? I don't know. And never knowing what the reason was until this one day when he meets Jesus. And maybe that sounds not fair to you. Maybe that sounds not right. You want to pull out your referee whistle and blow and say, hey, foul, that's not fair. The only reason we would say that, though, is when we forget the purpose of, of us, the purpose of us being here, the purpose of humanity, it's not us and our comfort. It's God and his glory. That is the purpose for which we've been created, for God and his glory. It's not all about us. Even though we keep wanting to try to make it, it's not about us. Ultimately, it's about God and his glory. So, the reason that that's going to be good news is that we see all through the Bible, evidence after evidence, God using good things, bad things, all kinds of things in order to point our eyes, in order to lift our eyes back up to him and say, I, I'm reaching out to you. I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Everything is pointing back to him because he's the only source where we can truly be fulfilled. We can truly have all of our hopes and dreams fulfilled in him. So he's constantly using everything at his disposal to point us back to him. And the reason that's good news for us is that if you're suffering today, or if you, well, you will at some point suffer, you can know this isn't meaningless. It's not purposeless. There is a plan being played out, and God is going to use everything at his disposal in order to point our eyes back to him and to bring glory to himself. He is achieving that purpose. And the work of God that Jesus wants to display in this man's blindness is to bring about healing. He wants to restore sight to this man, give him back his sight. And actually, all through the Old Testament, different places in the Psalms, Isaiah, they all pointed to somebody, some messenger coming, giving people their sight back as one of the signposts of the Messiah. That's how they would know that he was coming, as he would restore people's sight. There's a variety of different opinions as to the way in which Jesus healed him, uh, 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 making the mud and putting it on the man's eyes. Uh, there's a lot of different opinions about that. Uh, the reformer John Calvin, he thought the reason that, that Jesus put mud on his eyes was actually to, to make healing his blindness even more amazing. The guy's already blind, I'm going to block your eyes even more so that when you receive your sight, it's even a greater miracle. The same way that when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he poured 
buckets of water over his sacrifice before he asked fire to come to make the fire coming, consuming the offering, even more powerful miracle. I, I lean more towards the interpretation that just in the same way that a child oppresses Plato into a sculpture they've created in order to complete it, in the very same way, Jesus, who Genesis 2 tells us, formed us out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into us, is now taking some of that very same dust that he made us with, pressing it into his creation's eyes and completing his creation. The point is, Jesus is granting sight, however it is, he's restoring sight to this man. And I think we see an immediate parallel to restoring of sight, telling him to go wash to our own gospel transformation. There is a sense in which God restores our sight. He gives us spiritual sight so we can see that he truly is God and respond to him in faith. And then he washes us, he cleanses us of our sin. So although this is a real event in history, this happened, it's also showing a parallel account of gospel transformation. As we read on here, we see immediately this man begins to right away demonstrate and declare his transformation. Right away he begins to do this. Now you could say, in a sense, he can't help but demonstrate his transformation. He used to be a blind beggar, and now he's walking around talking to people, so that's a bit harder to hide. But look, look at how that demonstration leads to declaration. We see this, first of all, in verse 8. Look there. So he's being transformed. Now listen to this. His neighbors, verse 8, and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, oh, hi, I am the man. How were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. I love it that nobody told him about the spit part. He just says, oh, he made some mud somehow and put it in my eyes. Anyway, sorry. He made mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, if we move beyond this sort of Monty Python-esque kind of conversation happening here, where he's like, I think he looks like the man. No, and he's like, I am. If we can just get beyond that for a second, you see the demonstration of transformation was elicited, elicited by the questioning from those who saw his, his demonstration. They saw the transformation, and now they want to know what happened. They're saying, I can't believe that this happened to you. Tell us about it. Tell us what happened. Who, who did it? This is exactly what we said last week when we talked about demonstrating the gospel. It, it, first of all, it doesn't have any effect if nobody can see it. If you're transformed and, and the only place you demonstrate that transformation is here or in your own private Bible study and worship and nobody sees it, they're never going to want to know what's happened because they haven't seen the transformation. We also see he's demonstrating something that is amazing to them. It's something they want. They want to see this kind of power demonstrated in their own lives. And so they're like, Man, if that's what the gospel can do, if that's what Jesus can do, I want to know about that. So, it's just being as public about our gospel transformation as we are about other things that we know and love. A, a new child, our favorite sports team. But we see that this man's public de demonstration of his transformation leads people to ask him, what happened? Who, who did this? And because he's not a mute Mickey Mouse or Pluto and he can actually talk, he begins to speak and declare what happened to him as well as who transformed him, who healed him. Look at verse 11. Again, he says, The man they called Jesus made mud, put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed. 
and I could see. So it clearly connects the transformation now with a person. That person is this, the man they call Jesus. And I've said this a number of times before, but it's one of the simplest ways that you can do this exact same thing in your own life. One of the simplest ways you can connect your gospel demonstration with your gospel declaration is simply by letting it be known that you're a Christian. Connecting, identifying yourself with Jesus and making that connection for people. Which means, Monday morning, when you go into the office, when you go into class, when you go wherever you are, and someone asks you about your weekend, when you get to the Sunday part, tell them you went to church. Yeah, Sunday morning in church, then I was with some friends. It's, it's subtle, but it's going to register in their ears. They're going to hear, oh, you go to church. So oh. Suddenly now they're connecting your demonstration, your transformation with a belief system with all oh, those, he believes in God, he believes in that sort of thing. Uh, uh, when you're out for a meal, not trying to hide the fact that you're praying and giving thanks for your food. I'm not saying you have to stand up and be like, oh Lord God, thank you. You know, I'm not saying that, but just making it, hey, I'm not trying to hide the fact that I'm praying, we're giving thanks for this food. Even if the waiter's standing there waiting to put the ketchup down. Whatever. Also, just being willing to, to do these things in a, in a non-offensive way. A, a friend shares a struggle with you and you just say, man, do you know what? Would you, be, would you mind if later on if I just prayed for you about that? I, I really believe that God can do something about that. I'm going to pray for you. Is that, is that cool? Small, non-offensive things, but all connecting our transformation now with our declaration so people can now draw the connection themselves. And you know what? Beyond that, it's just the honest thing to do. It's the honest thing to do because you know what happens if people see your transformation but they don't hear your declaration? They think, what an awesome guy. Wow. Wow, what a strong woman, the way that she can power through that. And you know what they do? They don't connect it at all with the one who's actually accomplishing it, accomplishing it in you. You end up taking the credit for something God's doing and stealing glory that he intended to bring to himself. Let's keep reading here. In this next section, we see a little bit of a, a, well, it's a bit of a Trump rally going on here. Develops now, as I think these well-meaning people, they, they bring this guy to the Pharisees because they're like, well, you've got to check this out. We don't know what's happening here. We want to see what's going on. Can you tell us? So they bring him to the Pharisees to check it out. Look now at verse 13. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. That's going to be key in a second here. Therefore the Pharisees asked him about how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied. I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally they turned to the man born blind. What, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, He is a prophet. So, this is like so classic with religious people, right? Rather than just being excited about the fact that this guy's been healed, he's got his sight back, they want to sit there and debate the theology of whether or not Jesus should be able to heal somebody on the Sabbath. It's really comical, honestly, I think. Now, yes, God had commanded a Sabbath rest for his people. It was intended to be something for their joy and their benefit. He said, I want you to take a day of rest because it's good for you. And I'm going to demonstrate this in the way I make everything. And yet... The Pharisees had taken this thing that was good and, and for our benefit and turned it into this burdensome, uh, tons of rules, do's and don'ts kind of thing, so that it wasn't, it wasn't about something good anymore. It just became this rule to keep and follow. And believe it or not, there was actually a rule that they developed 
that said, no healing on the Sabbath. No healing on the Sabbath, which sounds about as rational as saying no levitating out of your chair before lunch on Tuesdays. Because is there a lot of people just walking around healing everyone? So much so that you've got to say, okay, you can do that every other day, but on Sundays, don't do that. Like, probably not, right? And yet, no healing on the Sabbath, that's work. But you see, the problem is Jesus, he's already become a flashpoint among the Jews He's gaining so much popularity and he's not playing by the rules of all the religious leaders and they don't like that. They see this guy's going to be a problem. We're going to have to do something about this guy. He's, he's stealing our power. He's disrupting our stability. So they're doing this so much so they're so concerned about what's happening with Jesus. If you look in verse 22, look there. There's this rule now that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ will be thrown out of the synagogue. We could probably extrapolate that to say, anyone who even just is happy about Jesus, who happens to think he's, he's not crazy, you're out. You're out. There, there's this whole section now, we're not going to read it all here, but 18 through 26, where uh, they bring in this guy's parents. They don't want to believe that he was actually blind. They're like, no, no, you couldn't have been blind, he couldn't have healed you. So they bring in the guy's parents, and they're like, is this your son? Was he blind from birth? Who healed him? And they're so afraid to say anything because of this rule. They won't even go there. They're like, yep, yeah, he's our son. Yeah, he was blind from birth, but actually we don't, we don't know who healed him. Ask him yourself. Actually, he's old enough. Now he can answer for himself legally. So just ask him. They're terrified to even just say the name of Jesus. But look at verse 15 of our passage here. Even in the midst of this pressure cooker going on, this guy is still demonstrating and declaring the message. He's showing his transformation and he's declaring it even in a place where this is super unpopular. And then in verse 17, they ask him, okay, well, he healed you. Who is this guy? Who is this that healed you? And now he says he's a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, somebody who speaks for God and who comes with God's power and authority. Now, clearly, this is not... uh, this gospel demonstration and transformation is not as well received as it was with the neighbors. Uh, this turns into a huge uh, uh, fight between these two people. This guy, as he talks more and more, and he's talking with the Pharisees, he's starting to see a lot of the cracks, a lot of the really just false and, and, and misguided kind of rational that they're using. And he's like, well, wait, that's not right. And the more he pushes them, the more angry they get, to the point where if you look at verse 34, they replied, You were steeped in birth at sin. You know what they're saying? Yeah, you were blind. You were blind from birth because you're a wicked sinner. That's why. And they throw him out of the synagogue, basically excommunicate him, cutting him off from the community life of of the religious community. But I want to ask you, just if you were to just pull the content of this man's declaration out, if we just took the things he said out and looked at them in isolation, I want to ask you, do you see a single time where he needed to have some doctoral level understanding of theology in order to declare the message? Was there a time when, when he needed to uh, understand systematic theology or, 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 or tell them about a hypostatic union? You know, Jesus is actually God and man, two natures in one person. Is there a time when he's uh, uh, pulling out quotes from Tim Keller books in order to speak to the Pharisees? No. In each and every time when he speaks, when he declares the message, he simply faithfully declares what Jesus has done for him. Period. That's it. That's the whole sum total of his declaration. 
And for all of us here, every single one here, myself included, I want to free us this morning to see that nothing more is required to start declaring the message than this alone today. You can start today declaring the message by simply declaring what it is that God's done for you. Sometimes you hear this called a personal testimony, your faith journey, whatever it is you want to call it. It's just nothing more than declaring what Jesus has done for you. This is who I used to be. This is who God's made me to be. This is who he's continuing to make me to be. It's, that's it. There's nothing more complicated than I once was blind and now I see. And if God's transformed you today, you've got a message today to begin declaring. It's as simple as that. So that's transformation to declaration. There's a lot more we could say about that, and, and I would want to, but I hope you just see at least how simple it is to begin declaring the message. You don't need a, an advanced course in apologetics or evangelism training to start declaring the message. You just need to be transformed. That's the first thing. Next, I want us to talk about moving from declaration to a greater revelation. Declaration to a greater revelation. This is the last thing I wanted to see now, as we see how the declaration of our gospel transformation can actually be one of the ways in which God reveals more and more of himself to us. Now, I don't know if you want to call this verbal processing or just interacting with something. When we interact with an idea more and more, it helps us grow in our understanding of it. But we see a clear example of this worked out in our passage here. Let me just walk through the points where you see the, this greater revelation happening. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, coming to this man, he puts the mud in his eyes. At this point, the guy's not saying anything. He just obeys, and he goes and washes, and he's transformed. But then look now at verse 11. The man who's been healed begins to declare what's happened to him. And at this point, the one who healed him is the man they call Jesus. Just, this is what he's heard. The man they call Jesus, he healed me. So he's, he's identifying Jesus as a, a celebrity, He's uh, this guy that you've heard about, Jesus. He's the one who healed me. And yet, the very next interaction that he has with the Pharisees now, he's declaring the very same message, but now look at verse 17. Now, the man replied, they say, who is this who healed you? Now, he's a prophet. Well, what happened? This is the very same day this is happening. The more he declares the message, he seems to be changing his understanding of who Jesus is. It's the, very same, it's the very same transformation, it's the very same guy declaring. But what I want to suggest to you is that talking out loud, sharing the message of your transformation, talking about it, interacting with other people about it, has caused this man to consider even more deeply, well, who is this Jesus? Who is he? He started out just parroting what he'd been told. This, yeah, this traveling guy, Jesus, yeah, he's, he's the one that saved me. But then as he recounts what Jesus has done, he realizes... He can't just be some man. He's got to be more than that. Because yeah, he, he touched me and he healed me. He's got to be more than that. He must be a prophet. He must be someone who speaks for God and who comes with God's power and authority. And if you read the full account of this man's interrogation, and it really is an interrogation, the Pharisees in verse 13 to 34, you see that he's growing in his understanding of who Jesus is, as well as his confidence in declaring the message. The more he speaks it, the more confident he becomes. And then in response to this, finally, then if you look now at verse 35, 35, excuse me, Jesus comes to him now and he fills in the picture. He completes the picture for the man. Look at verse 35 with me. 
Jesus heard that he'd been thrown out, it says here, and, and when, they, when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Okay. Now, first of all, some quick points of clarification. What does he mean? Why, why does Jesus say, do you believe in the Son of Man? That seems like a weird thing to say to him. Uh, theologian and author G.K. Beale says, in referring to himself as the Son of Man, there's something very specific Jesus is trying to communicate. And he's referring back to something he said a few chapters back in John chapter 5. This is actually the last time Jesus healed somebody on a Sabbath and caused a big ruckus. And there, he's raised someone up, the lame man sitting by the pool, and he's healed him. The guy's picked up his mat and walked. And Jesus is now connecting himself with God the Father. And he's saying this about himself. He's saying, this is why I can heal on the Sabbath. This is why your rules don't apply to me. Chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says this, And he, that is the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to judge. Authority to judge. Why? Because... He is the Son of Man. So now Jesus is using this title. That's one of the titles he loved to use for himself, the Son of Man. So this reference has to do with Jesus' authority as the Son of Man to judge. That makes way more sense then why in verse 39 of our passage, Jesus just suddenly says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. So Jesus, in one sense here, he's the one who sovereignly judges, who receives spiritual sight and who remains blind, which is just what we talked about a few weeks ago. We talked about gospel transformation, the story of Zacchaeus. Remember we said, even though we, we understand the chronology of events a certain way, it's very much different with Jesus. Jesus is the one seeking and saving the lost. It's not the other way around. Jesus here is the one who sovereignly judges, who will receive sight. So D.A. Carson points this out. He says, when Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's not saying, do you think the Son of Man exists? He's saying, have you put your faith and trust in the one who judges, who receives their sight? And the man says, okay, well, I, don't, I don't know who that is. Tell me who it is that I may trust in him. And when Jesus reveals he is this same Son of Man who gave him his physical sight, now Jesus is not the man, he's not the prophet, now he calls him Lord he calls him Lord Kyrios, and he worships him. Greek word for worship is proskuneo, which means literally to prostrate yourself before someone, a deity or a divine supernatural presence. So one interesting thing to see here is that, is that in the course of a single day, this is all happening in, in like an afternoon, this repeated declaration of this man's transformation has actually led both to a deeper appreciation of his transformation and it's also brought greater and greater understanding of who Jesus is, greater revelation of Jesus, just by declaring the message again and again. And if you think about that in your own lives, don't, we all know, just because we, we're saturated with it, we all know the power of story. Stories are very powerful. We know that uh, when we hear stories from other and we're, others and we're affected by it, and we know when we tell stories to other people and they're affected by it. Something I want you to think about. Why is it that we would imagine that the telling of our own story wouldn't also have a powerful effect on us? The telling of our own story has a powerful effect on us. 
And yet I wonder if one of the reasons that all around us we feel so often kicked down, we often feel so depressed, worthless, is because we do know the power of our own story. And yet, rather than telling ourselves every day the story of our transformation, the story of our redemption, the story we tell ourselves day in and day out is the stories of our failure, the stories of our defeats. Those are the stories that we tell ourselves every day. And imagine, just imagine how your life might be transformed if every day you didn't tell yourself, took five minutes to tell yourself your own story, the story of you. How your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you wouldn't be grown and more and more of him revealed to you every day as you tell yourself your own testimony. If you know the Bible, I mean, do you know how often through the New Testament the Apostle Paul repeats his testimony again and again? Talking about who he used to be before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and who he is now and who God's making him to be? I think he's not just telling that story to the people he's writing to. He's also telling it to himself. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to the stories that I tell myself every day, I think I need to change the channel. I need to change the radio station of what I tell myself. Maybe we all need to stop doing that. To stop repeating the stories of our hurts, our betrayals, our, our, our abuse, our failures over and over again, and instead telling ourselves the story of our transformation, telling ourselves the story of our redemption. This makes me wonder, maybe the key to a more powerful demonstration of the gospel is just that, a regular declaration of the gospel to ourselves. Reminding us of the fact, I've been transformed. I am a new creation now because of what God has done for me. Yes, that's who I used to be, but look who you've made me to be now. That's going to transform us, and it's going to transform our demonstration and our declaration if we do that, I think. Well, Maybe you can see now why we have declaration and demonstration in our purpose statement. When we talk about the transforming power of the gospel, I think the reason is we need both. Demonstration and declaration are two wings of a plane. You need both of them in order to fly. The declared message is what people need to hear to be saved. Yes, a faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Yes and amen. But think how hearts are prepared to receive that declared message. Think how the message is corroborated and proved by the demonstration of a transformed life. Read through this story again this afternoon or this week and, and just see how many times people want to deny and ignore this man's declaration of the gospel, but they can't. They're silenced. They're just shut down again and again by his demonstration of his transformation. They can't deny his declared message because he used to be blind and now he can see. And they can't deny his demonstration when they try to do that because his declared message continues to shore it up on the other side. We need both. And you'll see it again and again if you just read through this story in itself. So maybe you want to say, I I've declared this message to my family. I've declared this message to my friend. These people I want to see transformed. I want to see them saved, but nothing's changed. They, they won't trust Jesus as their Savior. Maybe... Maybe what they need to see more is the reality of demonstrated transformation in your life. Maybe that's what they're waiting to see. This actually makes a difference in your life in a way that says, ah, I want that too. 
And that will open up their heart to receive your declaration more completely. Or maybe for some of us, you know Jesus has changed you, but you struggle daily under that continuous replaying of that old story that keeps wanting to define you by who you used to be. May you hear the glorious hope of the gospel declared over you again today. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you know Jesus as your Savior, that is your reality. That's who you are. May that become the one thing that defines both your declaration of the gospel and also transform your demonstration of it. And you know what the cool thing about being in a church family, a church community, is that we don't need to just declare it to ourselves. We also can declare that message to each other. We can help each other when we see each other struggling to declare, that's not who you are anymore. No, don't, don't get deceived by that. You've been changed. You're new. You don't have to be that way anymore. That's not you. You're this new creation now in Christ. Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, he does exactly this. Uh, he, he lists all these ways of, of sinful ways of life that won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Yeah, that, that used to define you. But then he says, listen, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what he's doing. He's declaring that transformation to them. That's who you are now. So let's declare that message to ourselves, to each other in this church family, and let's declare it to the world around us. Each one is needed. We exist to see our city and our world renewed by demonstrating and declaring the transforming power of the gospel. That's, that's it. That's why we're here, and that's why we'll continue to be here. That's, that's our whole aim and focus as a church. My prayer is that by God's grace we may live out that purpose as a church, not just here, but all throughout this week and all throughout our lives in a way believing God that he'll use us as his ambassadors of transformation. That we truly will see our city and our world renewed as we do that. Let's pray right now and ask God to empower us in order to live out that reality. I ask as well, those of you who are helping me to serve communion, if you'd come forward. Father, you have saved us to a glorious hope. We have been transformed by you. You have touched our eyes and given us sight. You've renewed us, you've washed us, and we are new. First of all, I pray for those of us this morning who are struggling under the stories we're telling ourselves of that old reality. Father, would you bring about a fresh renewal for us this morning? Remind us of what you've accomplished for us in the cross. And Father, would you, as we seek to now declare and demonstrate that message to those around us, in our church family, as well as those in our community, in our everyday lives, would you continue to give us both a renewed vision of who you've made us to be and also an inspiration to declare that message, a courage and a growing freedom in declaring that message. Trusting that we don't have to be expert theologians. We just need to be those who've been transformed to declare what you've done for us. This is who I used to be. This is who God made me to be. I once was blind, but now I see. And then, Father, as we do that, may we truly see our hope and our aim as a church 
come about. May we see our city and world renewed, Father, personally as well as corporately. Do it for your glory alone, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.